Don't you love it when a major decision is behind you? You know, and the harder the decision, the greater the relief when the decision is made. You know, we may have moments of anxiety if we second-guess ourselves, but if the decision was made with much thought and prayer, we find comfort in the fact that the matter has been settled. Well, when Jesus rose from prayer in the garden, there was no doubt in his mind that he had made the right decision. He had committed himself to doing his Father's will, knowing full well the consequences of his decision. It hadn't come easy. He had agonized over the decision, but the decision had been made. The disciples, on the other hand, had fallen asleep. Jesus had encouraged them to pray, to prepare themselves for what was about to happen. And he had told them what was going to happen, but they didn't want to hear it. They were in denial and therefore resolved nothing during their times of prayer. As a result, Jesus was ready for the events to come, and the disciples were not. And that becomes obvious as we see the way Jesus handles what comes next and the way they react. We're in Luke chapter 22. While he was still speaking, behold, a multitude came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And a certain one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop! No more of this! And he touched his ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple... You did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. While Jesus was waking the disciples and talking with them, a mob broke into the garden. A multitude of religious authorities and soldiers armed with clubs and swords. And they were being led by Judas. Or as Luke refers to him, holding him, I think, at, at arm's length, the one called Judas, one of the twelve. Judas led the mob directly to Jesus and kissed him. Now, it wouldn't be unusual for a disciple to greet a rabbi with a kiss. But there's something especially treacherous in using a sign of affection to betray someone. And Judas had prearranged with the authorities to identify Jesus with a kiss. 
Apparently he was afraid Jesus might slip away into the night if he merely pointed to him. But he needn't worry. John makes it clear that Jesus identified himself when the mob arrived with lanterns and torches and weapons. In John 18, verses 4 through the first part of verse 8, we read, Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. When, therefore, he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, therefore, he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. Apparently, Jesus identified himself even before Judas could kiss him. But he still kissed him. Why is anyone's guess? Perhaps one of the disciples had bravely shouted, no, no, I'm the one you're looking for. And Judas wanted to make certain the soldiers arrested the right man. Or maybe Judas actually felt some affection for the one he was betraying. Whatever the case, as he leaned close to kiss Jesus, Jesus asked, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? He may have been trying to get Judas to rethink what he was doing, trying to prevent him from sealing his fate with a kiss. But when it's obvious he was going through with it, Matthew records Jesus saying, Friend, do what you've come for. Jesus held no animosity toward Judas. Even in the moment of betrayal, he called him friend. And he could do so Because he had made himself ready for the moment in prayer. The disciples, on the other hand, weren't ready at all. When they realized what was happening, they asked, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And before Jesus could answer, an ear had been lopped off. Luke doesn't tell us who the swashbuckler was, but John does. Writing some years later, when there was no danger of recrimination, John identified him as Peter. And, of course, that doesn't surprise us. You know, Peter was the impetuous one. He whipped out his sword and started slashing away. Whether he was simply inept with a sword or someone ducked, all he managed to do was cut off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. Dr. Luke then records for us Jesus' final miracle of healing. And he's the only one to do so. He says Jesus touched his ear and healed him. Now, maybe I've just been watching too many graphic medical shows on TV, but I wish Dr. Luke had given me more details. You know, he recorded that the ear had been cut off. So I assume it had fallen to the ground. So when he said Jesus touched it, I guess that means he picked it up. Did he then dust it off? (laughs) You know, before miraculously reattaching it? I just wonder about that. However he did it, Jesus made it clear to his disciples 
why he did it. He cried out, stop, no more of this. Jesus had never intended for the swords to be used to keep him from the cross. He could have called in the angelic hosts if he had wanted to escape. And as he would later tell Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. Jesus wasn't looking for a fight in the garden. At least, not when the Jewish authorities had brought a cohort of Roman soldiers, which numbered 600 men, to arrest him. And it wasn't because Jesus was outnumbered. 600 Roman soldiers wouldn't stand a chance against 12 legions of angels. A legion was 6,000. Now, Jesus had already fought his battle alone in prayer. He was now ready for the betrayal. And as he told those who had come to arrest him, there was no need for them to come for him with swords and clubs as against a robber. In fact, if they hadn't been afraid of the people, they could have arrested him any day that week in the temple. But as it were, this was their moment. And it was most appropriate for them to take him in the dark, since they were agents of the power of darkness. The disciples weren't ready for the betrayal, but Jesus was. And while they were in denial about his impending denial, Jesus was ready to be denied as well. Let's read on. And having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. And after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a cock crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Just as Jesus had predicted, after the arrest, the disciples scattered like sheep with no shepherd. They had not made themselves ready through prayer for what was happening. So they disappeared into the darkness. Peter, however, apparently recomposed himself and followed the crowd to the house of the high priest. Luke doesn't tell us, but John did as well. 
After initially abandoning Jesus, he too had followed the crowd to the high priest's home. And even though he doesn't actually identify himself, saying only that another disciple was there as well, he does indicate that that disciple was personally known by the high priest and that he was the one who made it possible for Peter to gain entrance to the courtyard. He also tells us that that unnamed disciple had entered into the court with Jesus, indicating, I think, that he had openly now and courageously identified himself as a disciple of Jesus. Peter, on the other hand, stayed back and tried to blend into the crowd. And I think his hesitancy to openly identify with Jesus in a hostile environment may have been what led him to deny his Lord three times. The first denial came as he was warming himself around the fire. The servant girl who had let him in the door and who knew that John was a disciple of Jesus raised the question about Peter being one as well. John records her as asking, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? The way she asked the question suggests that she wasn't certain and was even expecting a negative response. Well, Peter jumped at the opening and denied that he knew Jesus. He didn't even know what she was talking about. Apparently, she wasn't convinced and followed him out to the porch and began talking to the bystanders. One of them then confronted him with her suspicion. This time he denied it with an oath. I swear I don't know him. About an hour later, he was confronted again. Another slave of the high priest, a relative of Malchus, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Others jumped in, insisting that his accent identified him as a Galilean. And this time, he prefaced his denial with cursing and swearing. Something that would surely convince anyone that he wasn't a disciple of Jesus. And he said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. I do not know the man. Immediately, the cock crowed. And when it crowed, Jesus looked at Peter. He didn't say anything. He didn't have to. The look said it all. He looked at him like a parent, looking at a child who has just done something very disappointing, the way my mom may have looked at me on occasion. Peter got the message. He remembered how he had brashly insisted that he would never deny Christ, that he would willingly go to prison and even die for him. He hadn't believed it. When Jesus told him, he would deny him three times before the cock crowed, but that's exactly what he had done. So what did he do? He went outside and wept. Bitterly. 
He responded to his denial with tears of repentance. He was sorry for what he had done. And he sought forgiveness. And after the resurrection, Jesus made sure that Peter knew he had found the forgiveness he had sought. The angel told the women to go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus had arisen. He wanted Peter to know that he was still considered a disciple. Yes, he had sinned. He had failed to prepare himself for the challenges of the night and had cursed, lied, and denied knowing Jesus. But he had repented of his sin and found forgiveness. Judas, on the other hand, did not. Luke doesn't tell us what Judas did after the betrayal, but Matthew does. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed and went away and hanged himself. He too was sorry for what he had done. But rather than seek forgiveness, he tried to undo it. He returned the money and declared Jesus' innocence, apparently thinking they would then just release him. But when he discovered he could not undo what he had done, he decided he just couldn't live with it. So he took his own life. What a shame. Even Judas could have been forgiven. It's true that he had betrayed the Son of God. And that was no doubt worse than merely denying him. But remember what Jesus said about those who actually crucified him? He didn't say they were condemned and should go hang themselves. He said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they're doing. Apparently, Judas didn't fully realize what he was doing either because he felt remorse. But he didn't seek forgiveness. And there's a very important lesson for us here. We cannot undo our sin. We cannot make up for the sin in our life. We cannot even pay for our sin by taking our life. But we can be forgiven. If those who crucified our Lord can be forgiven, so can we. Obviously, it's better 
that we not deny him, betray him, or crucify him again. And if we prepare ourselves in prayer to face the temptations that certainly will come to us, we may avoid it. But even if we do, we can be forgiven. If our sin brings us to tears of repentance, we can be forgiven. All we need to do is surrender to His will, seek His forgiveness, and allow Him to cleanse us. And if we've not had the initial cleansing that takes place in the waters of Christian baptism, we die to self there so we can rise to walk in newness of life. He can cleanse us. He will forgive us. We can't handle it ourselves. But he can. Let's celebrate that together.